please, and we'll open them tonight to the book of Ephesians chapter 6. If you please find Ephesians chapter 6, and we are, of course, in the closing verses of this sixth chapter, and we're talking about the closing theme of the book of Ephesians, which is the subject of Christian warfare. When you become a Christian, you can't just stick a flower behind your ear Walk down the street and hope that God's going to throw rose petals in your path. It just doesn't happen that way. The Bible teaches us that once we get saved, that we are engaged in in a bitter battle. And God never promised us that we were going to live in peace and harmony with all creatures. But we are in a spiritual warfare. And the Bible has a lot to say about that warfare. There's an unseen spiritual world out there. And although the devil can't do anything to a Christian as far as taking his soul's salvation away from him, what he does do is he tries to make your life miserable as much as he can and also to try and ruin your effectiveness for God. And that hostility exists uh, between us and, and this unseen world and really and the seen world, I guess you should say. That hostility exists because... The Bible teaches us that when we get saved, we're no longer citizens of this world. We're strangers that are passing through a foreign country, and the people of this world just aren't too happy about us treading on their territory. And so they hate God, they oppose God, they oppose the people of God, and their hatred for us is really not so much for us because of us, but their hatred is for the one whom we serve and the one whom we love and whose we are. Their hatred is really against God. And Satan is against God. And so what he does, he just takes every opportunity he can to spew his venom out against God's people. And since Satan can't really directly affect God in any way, he can't hurt God, what he tries to do is to uh, direct all of his efforts towards his hatred towards those who are the objects of God's love. And, of course, as children of the Lord, we are objects of his love, and that's why the devil hates us so much. Well, what we very clearly need to understand is who this enemy is and how we are to fight this enemy. Now, tonight's message is the second of three parts in which we're learning about something, uh, to, some things to do with Satan's character. Uh, who is Satan? What drives him? What's behind him? And uh, we're studying this from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Now, these three verses, we're going to camp on these for a while. Uh, we've got, I've got four more messages that we're going to preach on verses 10 through 12 over the next few weeks. So you will stand with me, please. We'll read our text verses for the message. Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse number 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Heavenly Father, as we come before you tonight, I just ask you, Lord, that you'd bless the message as I preach this evening. Open our hearts to your word. Help us to understand better this, this spiritual battle that we're in and who this enemy is that we fight. And help us to be aware of him at all times and to draw upon the power of the Holy Spirit in this warfare. Uh, bless in this uh, service this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, sometimes I think that we wish the devil was flesh and blood because then we'd be able to see him. 
We know exactly where he was coming from. Uh, we know where the attacks are coming. But the Bible says that it's not flesh and blood that we're fighting against. And so this, this uh, uh, devil that we're fighting against is not a physical foe. He doesn't fight with physical weapons. And he never calls a truce in this battle. He's always fighting against us. And so Peter tells us that we have to be sober. He says, be vigilant. Because the devil is out there, he's lurking around every corner, and he says that as a lion, he seeks whom he may devour. So the devil's always ready to pounce on God's people. Where did the devil come from? Who is this guy? I mean, what's he really up to? And what's his problem, I guess we might say? Well, we started talking about that last week. The first thing we discussed was Satan's origin. And what we learned about this is that Satan actually began uh, innocuously enough... I mean, he wasn't Satan when he was created, and he is a created being. God's the one who made him, but God made him one of his angels. And I think that scriptures teach us that, indicate that uh, Lucifer or Satan is uh, one of the highest orders of angels. He was the anointed cherub, the word of God says, which makes him one of the creatures that was responsible for guarding the holiness, the justice, and the righteousness of God. And there are some people who say that he is so powerful that really he is the counterpart of Michael the archangel. And we'll be talking about Michael the archangel along with our study of angels in just a few weeks. And uh, we'll learn that uh, it appears that Michael the archangel is the highest of the order of angels and very well possibly could be uh, a counterpart to Lucifer. Well, we don't really have any clear insight into this hierarchy of angels, but regardless of what we know about it, we do know this, that Satan is a very powerful creature. The Bible also teaches that he became prideful and uh, he didn't want God to rule over him. He wasn't happy to be second to anyone. He didn't want to be under God's authority. And it suggested also that when God created man, that that, is the, that may be the very thing that set Satan off, set Lucifer off to cause him to rebel against God. And that's because God said that he was going to make man uh, to have dominion over the earth, that man was his crowning act in creation, and that angels would eventually have to serve men. And so Satan or Lucifer was not happy with that either. And so he was not going to be subservient either to God or to man. And that may very well have been part of the cause. But he became rebellious and he entered into a direct revolt against God. He defected and in his rebellion, it's likely that one third of all the angels followed him in that. And that rebellion was the introduction of sin and evil into the universe. Then another thing we learned about uh, last week uh, as we talked about Lucifer is that his name was changed to Satan or the Bible calls him Satan now. And that name actually means adversary. It means opposer. And he became the opposer of both God and man. Now, all, remember though, Satan is a, is a created being. He's a powerful being, but he is a created being. He's not eternal and he doesn't possess the same attributes as Jehovah God. So he's not equal with God. He's not God's counterpart. And not as some people might believe that Satan is the evil God and Jehovah is the good God. No, they're no way, in that, no way equal in that sense. And since he's not eternal, he's not omnipotent, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. And so he needs a lot of help to do what he does. And of course, he does have a lot of help. There are perhaps billions of these evil angels that follow Satan. Uh, those are what we call demons. 
And not only does Satan have these demons to help him, but at times he also enlists men to do his work. And, of course, the, the, the greater part of the world is unsaved, and they do what Satan wants him to, them to do. So he influences lost men. Uh, sometimes that influence can result in a direct possession of a person's body. And that would be evil people or, or lost people, of course. But then he can also use saved men. He can't inhabit a saved person's body, but he does influence our minds to do uh, things that are against God. So that's why the Bible tells us that we're to watch out for him. We're to understand that we are in a struggle. We are in a fight. And although Satan is not able to hurt a Christian in the way, as I said a moment ago, that he can take his soul, yet Satan poses a real threat to us. Because when we're not living in the Spirit and following God as we should, Satan is able to have his way with us. And we also need to learn that we're not going to escape Satan. I mean, he's going to be with us every single day of our lives. So that's why we have to be aware of him. Well, we're going to go on a little bit further and talk about some other things tonight. We've talked about his origin. So now let's describe Satan in his present state. I mean, what is he and what are some of his descriptions? So we're going to talk about Satan's description. And in fact, there is not a single creature in all the Bible that's spoken of more than Satan. There's more information about him than any other single individual in all of Scripture. And he's personified in in just about every evil way imaginable. Now, we've already talked about one description. He was given the name Satan. The Bible calls him Satan. That means adversary. And every ounce of opposition uh, within the, uh, the being of Satan is directed against God's people. And all evil that exists is attributable to Satan. There is no such thing as secondary or tertiary sources of evil. All evil is bound up in Satan. And whenever any opposition to God arises, it has a direct connection to this evil being that the Bible calls Satan. Now, I mentioned last week that uh, there are the elect holy angels of God and they are confirmed in their holiness so that there's not now any angel that could actually have another rebellion against God and and become another source of evil. Evil is bound up in Satan. And there are perhaps billions, as I said, of those evil angels. None of them are working independently of Satan. He's the mastermind behind it all. And even when the Bible talks about God sending evil, that doesn't mean that God is the author of evil. It just simply means that God is even able to take evil angels... If he wants to, if he chooses to do it, he can even take an evil angel and accomplish his purposes with them. Now, an example of that, of course, would be the demons that are released from hell during the tribulation period. We talked a little bit about that last week. Uh, Satan is the one who directs those evil angels as they're released from the bottomless pit during the tribulation. But God is the one who allows them to be released. So God's even in control of them. And then you think about Judas. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus knew that Judas had a devil from the beginning. He knew that he was being influenced by Satan. There was a demon in him, and yet God used Judas to carry out the betrayal of Christ. Now, Judas did exactly what he wanted to do. Every act that he committed was of his own free will, but God, of course, directed this whole process. So my point here is that every evil is attributable to Satan. Even though he doesn't personally perform every single evil, yet all evil comes from him. So if you ever want to lay blame on anybody for all the bad things that happen, then you can just lay it on the devil. 
So what are some of the descriptions that are given of him? Well, one of them, he's called the devil. And devil is the second most common name for him in Scripture, used 35 different times. When Jesus was taken into the wilderness to be tempted, the Bible says it was the devil that tempted him. And several times throughout that Scripture, it keeps repeating this. It's the devil who's tempting him. When Jesus was talking to uh, the, the Pharisees, he told them that they were of their father, the devil. So strictly speaking, there's actually only one devil. But you'll notice in your King James Version that often you'll see devils in the plural. And uh, devils refers to uh, these other evil angels that also fell with Satan. For instance, when th- there was an accusation that was made against John the Baptist, they said, he hath a devil. The Bible talks about casting out devils. James was talking about uh, unbelief or, or improper belief when he said the devils also tremble, the believe also and tremble. And so the King James Version uses the word devil sometimes when it's not referring to Satan. When you see it in the plural, it's not referring particularly to Satan. But whenever you see, uh, see the devil, then that is this one particular person. And the word devils in the King James Version should actually be translated as demons. And as I said, that refers to those other evil angels. Now, before I leave that particular description of the devil, uh, there's a a thing that's on a lot of people's minds today, and it has to do with demon possession. And people are always interested in this. Is it possible for Satan, for a devil or a demon to possess a person today? Well, first of all, I would say that if you are a Christian... You don't have anything to fear about demon possession. A demon cannot possess a saved person. Now, that's because the Bible teaches that when we're saved, the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And in order for a demon to inhabit our body, he'd actually have to come in and push the Holy Spirit out of its temple. And that's not possible. So a Christian never has to worry about being demon-possessed. Well, what about unbelievers? Does, do devils inhabit the bodies and do they possess unbelievers today? And there are people who argue that demon possession is not possible today, that it was only possible when Jesus was here on the earth, and that Jesus allowed that to happen in order that he might demonstrate very clearly his power over the devil. And so they say demon possession is not uh, not, uh, possible today. One thing I would say about it is I think it was more noticeable in the time of Jesus simply because Jesus and the apostles had the ability to identify demon possession. And that's one thing I'm not too sure about today, whether we can correctly always identify this demon possession. I mean, can we, can we really determine that so easily? And then I also uh, lean against the idea that we're able to cast out devils If they do inhabit people's bodies, then I don't think that we have the ability to cast out devils in the same way that the apostles did. And I'm certain about this, that there is no rite of exorcism or hocus-pocus that's done by the Roman Catholic Church in order to cast out demons. And I can give you one proof of that, which comes from uh, Matthew chapter 12, what Jesus said. He said, "...and if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then shall his kingdom stand?" And my position is the Catholic Church is full of demons. And if they start casting them out, then Satan's working against himself. So I don't think that there is any exorcism ritual that you go by that, ca- that you can cast out demons. The only way you're going to be able to cast out a demon, if there is one, I think, is by prayer. You pray for somebody to get saved. And then when that person gets saved, then the Holy Spirit moves in and the demon has to move out. 
And then I also believe that demon possession is far more prevalent in other countries than it is in the United States. I talked, uh, touched on this maybe a little bit in the Sunday night sermon this past week, but our, our nation is, is pretty much largely Christianized, so to speak, and so our, our people are not really superstitious, and so the devil doesn't work openly here like he does in many foreign countries. Now, in other places, uh, you know, uh, they, they may have a lot more activity of the devil in, in different ways. I think the devil works here more subtly. And the way he does it is by perverting the gospel of Christ. And the devil can have his way and accomplish his purposes just as easily by perverting the gospel as he can by influencing somebody in a, in a foreign country to, to practice some kind of voodoo or to call directly on the name of the devil. But make no mistake about this, folks. The devil is hard at work in America. The devil's working hard against us, and we're surrounded on all sides by, by demons. And the devil will take a crack at you anytime he can, just as well as he will somebody in a jungle somewhere. So we need to watch out for the devil. Um, America, of course, has more gospel preaching than any other country. We send out more missionaries, and so that means that we are likely to incur the wrath of the devil here for what we do. Now, the third thing, or second thing we want to talk about here, another description, is that he is called a prince. Now, back here in the uh, uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. And in John 12, verse 31, he's called the prince of this world. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees referred to him as Beelzebub, the prince of devils. And that's kind of an interesting uh, name given to Satan because uh, at the time of Jesus, Beelzebub was actually an, an interchangeable name for Satan. So you could use either one of those and they'd know exactly what you were talking about, either Satan or Beelzebub. And it actually has roots back in the Old Testament in the worship of Baal. If you remember uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel, that he came against all those prophets of Baal and called down fire from God out of heaven to consume his sacrifice. Well, all of those people were Baal worshipers. Uh, Baal was a god uh, worshipped by the Canaanite people, mostly or particularly by the Philistines. And uh, his name is actually a translation of something you're probably familiar with. Anybody ever heard of the Lord of the Flies? That's a translation of Beelzebub. Actually, it is the Lord of things that fly. And I would tell anybody who likes to delve into these kinds of things, stay away from it. You don't want to mess with this. You can get yourself in a lot of trouble by being curious about things of the devil. So he's a prince of evil. And as the prince of evil, Satan has been depicted in several different forms. Now, if you have small children with you tonight, I want you to cover their eyes for just a moment because I want to show you something I don't want these small kids to see. So I'll give you a chance to do that. All right, flash that up there for me, Corey. This is a, a picture that some have of the devil. This particular one is Baphomet, which uh, shows the devil as a goat-like creature, has feet like a goat and so forth, and a winged creature. You can take that off now. But that is a man's depiction of the devil. That's a man's drawing. Nobody has actually ever seen Satan. Now, certainly we haven't seen him as he was described in the Garden of Eden, where 
Eve saw him come as a serpent in a very beautiful form. We have no idea what that was like. We don't know what he looks like. We don't have any idea as far as when the Bible describes him as a dragon, what that's all about. We just simply don't know those things. But we do have that description. If you remember that we read last week from Revelation chapter 9, where it talked about those, uh, those uh, demons that come out of the bottomless pit. It gives us a horrible description of those. And that's why I say that, you know, people who have even more than just a passing interest in things of the devil are going to find themselves in a lot of trouble if you get too interested in it. Now, I think one of the interesting things about this is that with the Roman Catholic Church in their um, cathedrals, like the cathedral at Notre Dame, uh, you see those... Anybody know what a gargoyle is? Well, a gargoyle is actually somebody's depiction of a demonic creature. And why they have those on the churches, I don't know, but it's, I guess it's apropos. But uh, uh, we really don't know what these demons look like uh, other than what the Bible tells us about them. Now, another thing that we have in the Scriptures is a description of the, of the elect angels of God. The seraphim and the cherubim are both given a description in the Bible, and we'll talk about that when we get to angels. And uh, probably not what most people would expect. Not the idea that we get of angels, really, or a picture that we have in our mind. So we don't really know all of the ways that Satan and demons can present themselves. But what we do know about Satan is he is the prince of all of these hideous creatures. He's the prince of all of that. And this, he has an alliance of all these horrible creatures. And anybody who gets in an alliance with the devil doesn't really have any idea just how horrible that is. Now, here's a third thing that the Bible says about him. He's called a god. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he's called the god of this world. In whom the god of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Now, we're going to stop there for just a moment, and we're going to look at this verse in 2 Corinthians 4, just four, four, uh, four, uh, chapter 4, verse 4, uh, where Satan is called a god. Now, the Bible very clearly tells us here that Satan has the power to blind the eyes of men so that the gospel of Christ cannot penetrate into their hearts. Now, this shows us, I think, that Satan really has more power and more ability than we can fathom And most people are not willing to give the devil his due in this area. And they really don't understand just how blinding and powerful that the devil is in this area. And so we have many people today who preach that coming to Christ is simply an act of a person's will. That you can overcome this blinding force of the devil just any time that you want to. But the Bible teaches us that he keeps men blinded to the gospel of Christ. The Bible already has told us that, that men are disposed against God. We are haters of God. And here we have this extra power of unbelief that's behind all this. And yet there's still preachers that'll tell us that salvation, well, that's just a simple decision that somebody decides to make. And they say that when you hear the gospel, it's easy to believe as if there is no supernatural working of the Holy Spirit that's required in order to show a person uh, what kind of condition that he's really in. That we really don't have to have the Holy Spirit to do that. And they say that if God causes you to believe, if God turns you to believe or turns you to Christ by an act of his own sovereign will and by his sovereign pleasure, then what God is actually doing is violating your free will. And your free will is king. You can't violate a person's free will. 
Do you see the foolishness of that? Folks, it is impossible for a person to overcome his natural depravity, much less to overcome this this force that's behind all of this, actively blinding men's eyes towards the gospel of Christ. And so that's why it makes it absolutely essential that there be a supernatural regenerating work in a person's heart that enables that person to believe so they can come to Christ. No person will ever come to Christ or ever be disposed towards God unless God does a regenerating work. And yet you have that saying that, you know, we've mentioned so many times before. People say, well, God's done all he can do for you. And so now it's all up to you. You've got to take the next step. Shame on preachers who underestimate the power of the devil. It's right here in the scriptures. What does it really take to bring a person out from under the spell of Satan? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1. He says, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. Satan is called a god because he has supernatural powers that are unparalleled in men. Only God himself has the ability to deliver us from the power of the devil. Nobody can do it by themselves. So it takes God to transform us into the kingdom of light. Now, a fourth thing, a fourth description that we have in the Bible about Satan is he's called a ruler. Now, if you'll go back here to Ephesians 6, 12 in our text verses, it says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world. Now, again, there's a lot of speculation here about the hierarchy of evil angels. And it may very well be possible that the word rulers here refers to different areas of responsibility that Satan delegates to the demons. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. But some do believe that there are special demons or angels that are assigned over particular areas of the earth or or particular territories. We don't have time to go into it now, all of that now. uh, But in the book of Daniel... We find Daniel there praying a prayer, and the Bible says that his prayers were actually hindered by an evil angel. There was an evil angel that prevented one of the elect angels of God from coming to Daniel and telling him why his prayers hadn't been answered or that God was going to answer the prayer. Now, Daniel's telling the story about how that comes about. And in Daniel chapter 10, verse 13, he's quoting the words of this elect angel who explains why Daniel's prayer was so long in being answered. It says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now, the king or the prince of Persia, of the kingdom of Persia, refers to an evil spirit. And this evil spirit was fighting against an elect angel. He hindered that elect angel for a period of three weeks of coming to Daniel. And then Daniel says, or this elect angel says, that Michael, who's one of the chief princes, and that's Michael the archangel, came to assist this angel to overcome this other evil angel. So Michael, one of, the, one of the archangels of God, or the archangel, uh, comes and he helps this particular, this elect angel to fight off this demonic prince of Persia. Now later in, the, in this chapter, it also mentions the prince of Greece. And that also has reference to an evil spirit. 
And so based upon those scriptures, there are those who believe that there is a hierarchy of evil in the world so that there are demonic beings that actually control certain areas of the earth. Now, here would be like an, an angel that controlled that area of Persia, an evil angel that controlled Greece. And we could say there's an evil angel that's in charge of America and charge of South America and the other continents and other countries. And this is the kind of thing that Satan does. He delegates authority to these evil angels. And, of course, he's the one who's at the top of that chain. Now, another thing that Satan is called, he's called a deceiver. In Revelation 20, verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived the nations will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, the devil is so adept at deception that the Bible says that he can appear to us even as an angel of light. He causes us to mistake him for one of God's elect angels. And that's one of the things that makes the devil so dangerous. Now, this is what Satan is up to. He's all about making you think that he is not what he is, and he is what he is not. He's working at that all the time. And and folks, he is so good at it that he can pervert the gospel and cause people to believe a lie. Now, just to show you how powerful the, the, the Satan is in the area of deceit, that after the millennial reign of Christ... After Christ has ruled for 1,000 years in perfect peace upon the earth, the Bible tells us that Satan is released and he comes out of the bottomless pit and he goes out to deceive the nations once more. Now somehow, just to show you how good the devil is, somehow this same devil who has had a part in the tribulation period wreaking havoc over the whole world and destroying the lives of people in a terrible time of tribulation, the same devil comes to people after Jesus Christ has ruled and reigned for a thousand years of righteousness in a very short time. He is able to deceive all the nations once again. With lightning quickness, he goes right back out there and deceives people's hearts. How does he do that? He preys upon the depravity of men's heart. And that depravity is always going to be there unless God comes and changes a person's heart. Now that, just one more item here that shows you how impossible it is for a person to trust Christ without being regenerated first by the Holy Spirit. So after 1,000 years of perfect righteousness, that had no effect on the nations of the world. They're ready in a heartbeat to turn right back to Satan. So what would possibly make a preacher think that because he tells somebody to raise their hand and walk down an aisle, that it's as simple as doing that, that a person gets saved by. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. The Holy Spirit must take those blinders off of a person's heart, must remove the power of Satan from him before he'll ever believe. Now, the next thing, he's called a tempter. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5 says, For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you, and our labor be in vain. Now, as I said earlier, uh, Satan is the instigator of all evil, and he's a tempter, and he knows enough about human nature, and he knows enough about you in particular, that he knows exactly the way to tempt you. He knows exactly your weak spot, and he knows how to hit that button. And the king, uh, the, the, this devil has keen powers of observation. If you remember last week, I told you that it's unlikely that Satan has tempted anybody that you know or tempted you personally. 
I mean, he can only be in one place at one time. So it's unlikely he's done that to you personally. And yet he has all of these evil angels out there. And they are watching everybody in the world. And they're watching Christian people to find out where the weak spots are. After the services last week, someone asked me whether the evil angels can go out and work on their own. I mean, does an evil angel just decide to take off and do his own thing and, and uh, you know, do his own temptation or whatever? I think the best way to explain that is that Satan has a game plan. I mean, he's got his cheat sheet, and uh, all the evil angels are clued in to the devil's game plan. And they all work in exactly the same way. They all have the same methods. They have the same devices. And after 6,000 years of human history, they have seen it all. They know what it's impossible, I should say, it's impossible for you to throw something at the devil that he hasn't seen before. He's been around too long, and his, op, his powers of observation are beyond belief. And so on behalf of the devil, all of these demons, demons uh, start to put into play all the deviant tricks that cause people to sin against God. And you know a remarkable thing about this is that all of these evil angels were at one time good angels, just like Lucifer was. And it's very likely that every one of them were very close or very closely approximate the same power that the devil has. So now you have six billion, I said six billion, you have six billion people in the world, and at least that many evil angels probably or even more, all of them possibly with nearly or as much power as Satan has. And every one of them has eons of experience. All of them are lightning quick. All of them are smarter than you are. How do you think you're ever going to outwit them? How are you going to outmaneuver a demon? It's impossible. You can't do it. You can't do it. And so that's why God has given you the ability to resist. Now, the Bible teaches us that we can resist the devil. But the thing is, resistance of the devil only works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't work without him. So lost people can't resist the powers of the devil. But God has given his people this special power and ability to resist the wiles of the devil. But again, it only works in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. And so when the, when the Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, it's not you that the devil's fleeing from. He's fleeing from you going in the power of the Holy Spirit. He's fleeing because you're working in conjunction with God's Holy Spirit. So if you're not saved, that's a very good reason to get saved. It's a good reason to trust the Lord because you don't have the power to resist the devil without Jesus. The next thing is that he's called a murderer. Now there are a lot of other names that we can apply to Satan that we find in Scripture. Uh, we'll stop the descriptions with this one. But the Bible says that he was a murderer from the beginning. That was his intent all along. And when he came to Eve, his purpose was not to help her. His purpose was to murder her. And that's exactly what he did. Through his actions and through the fall, Adam, or through the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, Satan actually murdered the human race. All of the human race died spiritually when Satan convinced Adam to follow Eve in eating that forbidden fruit. Well, thank the Lord for this. The Bible teaches there is a second Adam. Now, spiritually, all of us died in the first Adam. But the Bible teaches a second Adam came, and that's Jesus Christ. So Satan, or I should say Adam, is the spiritual representative of all, of all men, all lost men. And 
Jesus Christ is the spiritual representative of a new race of resurrected believers in him. So if you're going to live, you have to live through Christ. Well, as I say, there are many other descriptions given in Scripture about Satan. We can talk about him as, the, as a liar, as a lion, as the wicked one, Apollyon, Belial, uh, a dragon, Leviathan, and on and on you go. There's all kinds of names given to him. We're going to finish the lesson, though, with a final observation. We know about his origin. We've talked about his descriptions. And now, finally, let's talk about Satan's personality. And there's a lot we can say about his personality, but we're going to confine this to just three aspects very quickly of Satan's personality. The first one is he is intelligent. You know, I've been asked before, if Satan is so intelligent, then why doesn't he give up? He's bound to know he's not going to win, and he can read the Bible, he knows the way things are going. Why doesn't Satan just give up? He's so intelligent. Well, he's intelligent, but he's self-deluded. And men are the same way. I mean, we have some highly intelligent people in the world. There's some highly intelligent scientists. And even though there's incontrovertible proof that there is a God, yet we have scientists who say there is no God. Well, are they stupid people? Are they not intelligent? Of course they're intelligent. They're just self-deluded. And Satan is the most highly intelligent creature in all of the universe. Perhaps he's I should say perhaps he is the most intelligent. I don't know if, there's some, if there are some elect angels of God who may be equal to his intelligence, but he's way up there somewhere, and he's second probably only to God. We're not going to outsmart him. No matter how hard we try, we're not going to outsmart him. Now, I talked a minute ago about Satan's eons of experience. I mean, he's observed humans for so long that there's nothing new under the sun for Satan. He knows where you're going before you ever go there. And even though Satan is not able to read your mind, he makes a highly intelligent guess with uncanny accuracy about what you're going to do next. That's how good he is. You know, I once heard a preacher say that Satan can't read our minds, and so what we need to do is stop verbalizing our plans because Satan can get our secrets if we do that. And I thought, well, there's a preacher that's self-deluded. He doesn't really understand what the devil knows. The devil has seen so much that if you have a secret, he knows what your secret is. He knows what you're going to do. He knows enough about men. He doesn't have to read people's minds. So he's a very intelligent creature. Then he is also emotional. Satan is an emotional creature. He has desire. Jesus told Peter that Satan desired to have him, to sift him as wheat. And that's what the devil likes to do. He likes to toss you around like a rag doll. He derives his deviant pleasure from everything bad he can do to your life. He has pride. We don't have to go into that anymore, I don't think. We talked about that quite a bit. And pride is what got the best of him. And pride is what's actually going to finally lead him to destruction and hell. He also has wrath. He gets angry about things. The scripture says that we ought to watch out for the devil's wrath. It says that in the end times, especially that when the tribulation is winding down, that the devil is full of wrath because he knows he has just a short amount of time. And the scripture says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil is come down to you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but the short time. Now the devil's wrath will be the instrument of devastating calamity during the tribulation period. Now, God is the one who orchestrates it, and God allows it, but it's the devil who implements it. And he'll relish that opportunity as much as he can to destroy the lives of men in that time. Now, the third thing and final thing about him is he is an 
organizer. Now think a minute about the devil's organizational abilities. We've already covered this, this uh, delegation of authority that he gives to the different princes of the world. He has an efficient system that carries out his plan in every corner of the globe. And so when we decide that as a church, for instance, that we are going to send a missionary out to the deepest, darkest jungles of South America or Africa or Indonesia, wherever it might be, the devil already has somebody there ahead of us. He's already beat us to the punch. He is everywhere. He has a great network. And that network runs through every country, among every tribe. It's worldwide, so there's not one single person in all the world who's not affected by the power of the devil. He also has his organized religions, and he has brand name recognition. He started Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Confucianism, Mormonism, the New Age movement. He has a personal brand of Christianity. You find it worldwide in Roman Catholicism and in Protestantism, Protestantism, and also, believe it or not, he has a Baptist brand as well. And so the ones or any parts of these denominations that, that do have enough truth so that people can be saved, he still influences them with false views against God's sovereignty. And we even have Baptists, you know, who say that you can't put sovereign and grace in the same sentence. Well, how good are his organizational skills? He organized a rebellion in heaven. He was deceitful enough to convince angels to follow him. And if we talk about that area of deceit once again, he is so good, angels and men both follow him. He's able to organize. Then we mentioned the millennium. After the millennial reign, he's able to organize the nations once again in order to go against God. Now, that's the last time that he organizes anything. That's the last of his rebellions and organization. The whole network that the devil have, has is going to come crashing down. Every one of his ambassadors are going to be recalled from every corner of the globe, and they'll never serve him again. They'll spend eternity in hell. Now, here's the thing about the devil, folks. Know the enemy. Understand this resume that he has. It's long. It's impressive. He's been at his work for a long time. He has eons of experience. And the thing that you need to understand most of all, you cannot go it alone against the devil. It is impossible. And that's why you need Jesus Christ. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to be together tonight. Uh, Lord, once again, we ask you to show us uh, the power of the devil. Help us to understand who this terrible force is and Lord, may we always be aware we have to rely on you in every area of our life. If not, we will succumb to the wiles of the devil. Bless our people in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.